Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. No matter where you're listening to us from or how, sit down, get comfortable, ease the seat back, and enjoy today's episode. All right, I am in the field on a trip to photograph bighorn sheep in the rut in northwest Wyoming, and I just happened to have the Doug Gardner with me several of you have been asking what the heck happened to doug where has he been well we'll get into some of that some of that he can't get into but doug welcome back to the podcast thanks ron glad to be here it's, it's good to be back after being on a little hiatus for a while yeah so let's talk about the hiatus <laughs> has it been has it been that much of a break really no it hasn't been a break the bottom line was i, I had to kind of step away from the podcast simply to be fair to y'all I didn't want to you know get in a situation where you were counting counting on me and um and I couldn't be there and so um, my schedule has just gotten so busy that it's really impossible for me to plan anything anymore um this year has just blown by I can't believe we're um, a week away from Christmas now and I just like where did the year go I've been traveling all over the world and shooting all kind of things for a variety of different people and so it's just been a whirlwind but uh, it's good to be back yes and that being said there are several things that um, Doug has been doing and is on the way to do that we are not at liberty to discuss yet until it comes out publicly but trust me when I say we will definitely have Doug back on as soon as those things are released Absolutely. Uh, because they're they're going to be projects that you're all going to want to hear about and you probably all will will see it anyway because they're right. they're major uh, blue chip films uh, for major networks. Let's just put it that way. Right. So there will be lots of um, media blitzes going out, and um, I can tell you, it's you know, South America, Western United States, Northern United States, and East Coast United States, and it's not over yet. Yeah. Uh, Got several trips already planned, assignments uh, starting January, February, May through June. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's just filling up. It's gonna, it looks like it's going to be another, you know, screamer of a year for 2020. Yeah, and that's, that's a mouthful already. I, I know you have been busy, and I know that it gets a little bit tougher to do things like this when your schedule ramps up like that. It does, it does. That. I'm glad we were able to get together. You know, I was out west here in Wyoming um, anyway and had a few extra days and we got together and we went to shoot some bighorn sheep and so that was really good and you know we're able to to sit down and and have a little chat so uh, that worked out. All right so let's paint the scene a little bit for where we're at. Uh, Right now we're in my cousin's living room (laughs) and uh, a bit warmer than it was today. (laughs) Much warmer than it was today. The three of us have been out for the past couple days photographing bighorn sheep in the rut filming bighorn sheep in the rut and suffice it to say that Wyoming never disappoints no no it definitely doesn't even if you have a short time trip like this that's right you know I was wondering how much I was actually going to get done these past you know couple days that I had some free time to to actually shoot on my own and my god it was it was incredible today as a matter of fact when we decided to leave my card, my last card had just tripped zero, zero, zero. So I had 
zero time left on my last memory card. So <laughs> we timed that just right. So it was, a, it was a very active day for sure. Okay, let me be fair to Doug, though, because he had three minutes of footage left. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I couldn't help myself. I had to play with the expensive toys <laughs> that were sitting out there in the field. And so Doug was giving me a little bit of a tutorial, and I recorded his last few minutes of yeah. footage. But it, it was a good day. We had some activity that you just don't get into. I, I liken it kind of to a rut frenzy that you get into with elk. If you just oh, hit yeah. the right day, you'll Absolutely. have multiple bulls screaming, multiple bulls chasing the same cows, and it's just activity everywhere. And that's exactly what happened. Today is was pretty much a carbon copy of the way the last two weeks have been. Um, I've traveled from uh, Jackson to Dubois to Cody. And it has just been wide open. Um, it's been one of the better years that I've experienced in the past few years. You know, and a lot of that goes into the whole pneumonia issue that we've got that's um, wiping out our sheep herds. But we can get into that on another podcast. But um, but it has been hopeful, actually. I mean, it was a really, really good season so far with the rut and uh, lots of activity every day. I mean, it's just it's like I've been on the fights every day almost and some like today we didn't get those great you know launching head banging uh fights but we did get some amazing chasing that was going on where there were you know four rams was it four or five rams well at one time i was i was looking through a couple of my images after i got them downloaded and at one time there were six rams six after rams. one u yeah chasing one and little u for one of them was a, a yearling just a little banana horn yeah everything had kind of tapered off all the the ewes started to bed down some of the rams were bedded down and randy my cousin looked up at a, a cliff that we'd been watching earlier that morning and it was pretty close to about a half a mile away yeah long ways off and uh i never even saw it yeah well yeah you were just coming back yeah i was just location. coming back i had some battery issues and uh we're yep. going down the road to finish scouting that area to make sure we weren't overlooking so we'll come back and y'all are going crazy it was nuts randy said oh good activity up on the cliff and i looked up and when i looked up i had a little bit of trouble seeing what he was looking at and then i saw a ram bail off about a 20-foot cliff hit the snow and and slide downhill and then just vanish and that was all i saw of the whole initial i heard a crack uh, so there was one crack of the horns up up at the top of that mountain and then like i said they're about a half mile away roughly mm -hmm. and it in about 15 seconds they were right on top of us right yep. where the rest of the sheep were the you came to us uh to the rest of the sheep probably yeah. try to escape what was about to happen <laughs> to her um what she didn't realize though is that she was jumping from the the frying pan right into the fire for sure there were rams everywhere where we were set up yeah, they didn't give up. They chased her, I mean, full-on running, not just, you know, trotting fast, but full-on running as fast as they could in circles for 10, 15 minutes at but least. It was a long time. And and yeah. I just, I mean, it was a little, I thought I was watching NASCAR. It was just around in a circle, <laughs> rounds in circles, lap after lap after lap. And um, yeah, and Rubens racing because those Rams were trying to peel each other. That's off right. Of her. Yeah. Now, did you notice the uh, the 
the horns knocking as they they were oh, running yeah. so close together. Their horns were actually knocking. Yep. They were they were trying to each one of them was kind of jockeying for first position behind the the ewe as they uh, as they ran. That was interesting. Now, as the non-expert videographer, cinematographer, I switched the stills to, to <laughs> capture this because Why, it, it was it was happening so fast and trying to follow focus. Yeah. On a DSLR, is tough. Is tough. You've it's got, tough. and I don't. I don't have a, a view screen other than the LCD on the back of the camera. Um, so trying to fine tune that focus, number one, is tough. Number two, trying to fine tune that focus on the move with a DSLR anyway, without having a follow focus setup, is almost impossible. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is the physics of. A 35 millimeter lens is different than the the way the uh, the physics of the gearing of the focus barrel and we call it focus throw mm-hmm. uh, is on like a cinema lens and so those lenses the 35 millimeter lenses are much more touchy um, you know you t- barely touch it and you're jumping in and out of focus right. um, you know quite easy whereas with a cinema lens. You know, you actually have to make a couple turns in order for that uh, focus to actually change, and it, it allows you to do things much more smoothly. So yeah, you were fighting it uh, from all ends today. So I well, think you I probably made I the best decision. I didn't fight it. I just yeah, I just bailed. But it was it. There's some great images, and so I'm I'm happy to say that I did that. Um, so Doug, you've been busy the last couple of weeks. You kind of talked about a little bit in Wyoming doing some workshops. Yep, started out, uh, did two bighorn sheep workshop this year. The first group, uh, and I only do small groups, four people at a time. Uh, that way, you know, we keep it nice and, and personal. I can work with each person. Um, the main thing is, is it allows us to be very mobile. We can move quickly. We can even change complete locations quickly if we need to because, you know, four people and a little bit of luggage and, you know, we can move if we need to. But, um, so yeah, four people and I had them in for seven days and the first group was, uh, all photographers. And so, um, so, you know, we kind of helped them hone their photography skills a little bit, um, introduced them to the wonderful world of photographing bighorn sheep and how exciting that can be, especially during the rut. And then the second week was something completely different that I know of i think this is the first video uh workshop uh wildlife workshop that has ever been done i if if there is others i I don't know about it right but um but it was definitely my first one and so yeah these were people that um all came from the photography world and were wanting to either learn more about you know wildlife cinematography or they were just getting into it um, you know, just testing the waters to see if it is something that they wanted to dive into a little bit because, uh, like it or not, that's where the world's going. You know, the, the need and the use of video, uh, is just more and more and more every day. You know, we're, we're people that have to be constantly stimulated, you right. know, that we're can walk around with a phone in our hand all the time. And so, uh, you know, and there's not a place you can go, grocery store, doctor's office, lawyer's office, school, wherever, that doesn't have multiple TV screens, restaurants, whatever. And so, uh, so yeah, so 
I think these people were, you know, just kind of testing the water to see if they really wanted to get into video. You know, what will the, you know, is it something that um, that's hard to do? So, uh, so that workshop went really well, uh, being a inaugural, you know, type workshop. Yeah. So, um, and now I got a few days to shoot with you and uh, get some personal stuff done. So. Yeah, and I will. Any of you that feel like you've kind of hit a wall. In photography, and I hear people talk about that all the time. I've just gotten a little bit stale, haven't gotten out because I just don't have that fire anymore. Let me tell you, if you feel like you've hit that wall, if you feel like you've conquered the challenge that is photography, take your DSLR out and try to work on getting some wildlife video. It's going to require a little bit. It's going to require, you know, a a good tripod uh, that has the ability to, to hold a leveling base in it. And then a, a video head, um, just to make sure you have those smooth transitions, which mine does not, <laughs> we discovered. Um, we're working on that in the equipment realm. Um, but it does require a little bit of a, a little bit of a financial injection to, to get yeah, that process started. It does. But it is a new challenge, and I can tell you, you know, I started taking photographs so that I could tell everybody around me, my family, friends, so I could show them what I was seeing out there because I spent a lot of time out and about. And video allows you to tell that story just yeah. in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can tell. You know, with photography, you gotta you have to tell the story with one image of what's mm-hmm. going on. Um, you know, so like these bighorn sheep and they're fighting and running and and doing all interacting, you know, you've got to kind of tell the whole story of the rut with one moment. And with video, you get to film all of that behavior and um, and then edit it together. So it's it's, it's different. It's different. Um, one of the things I do like about video is that there there are moments where you can't take a photograph. So. Mm-hmm. You know, those bighorn sheep, you know, running around behind, you know, through brush and everything. And with a photograph, you know, if they're standing behind a tree or in thick brush, you don't, you don't have a picture. You have to wait till they get in the open. You can't have anything between you and them. But with video, you know, you can video them slipping through that grass or through those trees or running through it, and, and it all works. And so uh, there's some things that uh, that video does a lot better than stills. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely will not say it's easier than stills um, because, you know, everything's heavier. The equipment's heavier. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot more cumbersome. It's more expensive, you know, and you don't have – that wonderful thing called autofocus and so you know all professional video cameras today um are manual focus um there are a few starting to come out now that are testing the waters with autofocus and um and you know there's a few that are pretty good but autofocus is autofocus you know but right. um but yeah there's there's definitely uh pros and cons to both i guess you could say but if sure. you're looking for like i said if you're looking for something new to do yeah, try your hand with the video. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. And for I, me, you know, for me, all, all my life, everybody said, oh, you know, you got the best job in the world, and you get to go around and travel and take pictures of great wildlife and all this. But And, yeah, I would say, yeah, I do have the greatest job on earth. And I always, you know, consider myself very blessed and uh, very thankful for what I had and, and, you know, the career that I had in the wildlife uh, still world. And But, you know, my puzzle was complete, I thought, 
but it was like there was like one ruffled corner, one little piece of that puzzle, that last little piece that had a gap in it that wasn't fitting quite right. And when I found wildlife cinematography, that's when my my puzzle went click, and it all that that was the missing thing for me. So, and then um, there's a new puzzle. And then there's a new puzzle. <laughs> there's always a new puzzle, right? <laughs> so I've been kind of delving into this video thing and, and kind of looking at making a little bit more of a jump. One thing that I've found that I think uh, wildlife cinematographers don't get enough credit for is if you look in the studio, the movie world, the commercial world, so to speak, typically there is somebody there to just make sure the camera is pointed in the right direction. And then there's another person there to make sure that focus is correct. Yep. You've got somebody there pulling focus for you. Wildlife cinematographer. And if you guys saw, well, actually you can, because we'll have a little clip um, in the show notes. See Doug's setup. You'll see two viewfinders and one is for focus. Mm -hmm. And the other one, is uh, it just an external monitor? Correct? Yeah, it's just an external monitor. So, so one I use for is strictly for uh, focusing by, and then the other one I use to actually change functions on the camera or show me, uh, well, and show me a raw version. So one monitor shows me what the actual raw image looks like, and then the other one shows me what the image looks like with. Um, with a, a LUT applied to it, and it also allows me to dial in that focus because, you know, manually focusing things on running, you've got to really have that dialed in to, to get it right. So, and you got to be able to see it in order to focus it. So, Right. And I will say, I, I had no idea that this was even available and available for a fairly reasonable amount of money when you look at the overall scope of video tools. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is probably going to be what I buy myself for Christmas, I think, <laughs> with the with the focus, with the follow focus wheel and the the, the monitor. monitor. Yeah. And you, what was the brand that you use? Um, that particular one uh, is the Atomos Shinobi. Now it, they they are Atomos is is known for. Uh, monitor slash recorders so it's a monitor and it'll actually record like a ProRes file or different formats for you um, separately from the card actually in the camera this one is just a monitor it has no recording capability and that's what I was looking for I mean the setup is is heavy enough as it is um, so I was looking for a monitor that was very lightweight and simply uh, gave me good quality to view and focus by i wasn't concerned with with uh really any of the other features to be honest mm -hmm. with you and i think mike on his setup I, I wish he was on here to correct me if i'm wrong but i i'm pretty sure he's got both the external monitor but he's also got the the eyepiece that he uses at mm -hmm. you know in a lot of locations as well and i'm sure you probably do yeah as well. the eyepiece works great as well too um one thing that Whenever possible, I try to use an actual monitor instead of an um, electronic viewfinder. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is if I'm inside that viewfinder, got my eye in there, you know, your tendency, natural tendency is to keep the other eye closed. And when you do that, you lose your situational awareness. So we were in a situation 
Well, I was in a situation a few days ago, and y'all, you and your your cousin were in a situation yesterday where had you not had situational awareness and actually could see your peripheral, what's going on around you, uh, Randy was almost run over by yeah a ram. Yeah, a ram and, took uh, off after yeah. after a younger ram. Yeah, so I, I do I I try not to use the uh, electronic viewfinders if possible. There are situations where if you're in very high winds, the more monitors you have and things sticking off of the camera, the more of a sail it becomes, and it picks up um, like a quiver. The, the lens will actually shake, and when you're working at super telephoto uh, magnification, that just magnifies the shake even more. So um, so that's the reason for that. Yeah, and that's, you know, trying to film with a DSLR, that's one thing I – I've noticed is that you do, I mean, the tools that people suggest aren't mere suggestions, right. you know, the rail for big glass as a, an extra support, the follow focus, the, those kind of tools, but just the support base, the video head itself. And we talked a little bit about that because I've been looking at a couple video heads, you know, Doug recommends, and I, I would say Michael would recommend also three times the weight of your, heaviest setup right is what your video head is going to need to support and when you have uh you know doug does some projects where he's using the the 50 to 1000 canon 50 to 1000 yeah. lens that is a heavy that's the heavy i think setup. it's the heaviest thing made uh was definitely the longest telephoto made and uh i think it's 18 or 19 pounds just the lens no camera attached no Map box, no flags, no nothing. That's just the lens. Sigma has a 25-pound, the Sig Monster, they call oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, Have you yeah. seen that? Well, that's, is that 800 millimeters? I, I think it's 300 to 800, yeah. Yeah, the uh, 50 to 1,000 um, also has that uh, built-in converter. So it, it actually makes a 1.5 converter, so it actually makes it 75 to 1,500 millimeters. And um, it is, oh, I mean, it's a, you really pay f- not only out of the pocket for it, but you pay in the fact that um, it's so, so heavy and so difficult to actually work with, um, to wrangle. And every time you pick, you know, the your rig up to move or, you know, just over a, a few feet, I mean, it's a struggle. It's so heavy. Uh, and then your tripod and the head that goes with it. So the head to support a 50 to 1,000 um, is actually something like a Atlas 40, which is 21 pounds for the head, not the tripod, just the head. So mm-hmm. you end up with a 60 to 70 pound rig is what you end up with, but it's a trade-off. You know, you have to, that is what we call a proper sequence lens. You can shoot anything from your wide establishing shots to your mids, to your tights, to your super tight details with one lens without having um, change, change lenses. Um, So it's a trade-off, you know, you got that convenience of being able to get everything you want with one lens, but, it's heavy and bulky and expensive. <laughs> Backbreaker. Yeah. So what's uh, on the horizon for you? I know there's a couple projects that you have, assignments that, like I said, unfortunately we have to just leave it as a teaser for yeah, now. Yeah, just uh, unfortunately I can't. Uh, there's not a whole lot I can say about it other than 
Um, you know, like I've been in Brazil for a month. Um, I, this year I've been, this is actually my third trip to Wyoming. I've been in Montana, Michigan, Louisiana. Um, let's see, where else? Um, and Florida this year. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and starting in January, is, you know, we're going to start all over again. So, right. uh, so yeah, I, I really can't say much more than yeah, that. I no. can't even tell you the, I can't even tell you the uh, the species that we're going to be filming. But, but you're going to continue to do the uh, videography workshop, cinematography yeah, workshop. Is that so something? the workshops? I'm going to do a few workshops um, here and there. Um, I have to kind of schedule those between assignments. Um, but yes, I'll probably continue to do the Bighorn, uh, workshop, the video workshop and the stills, uh, workshop, uh, next year this time as well. Um, and then possibly one on, um, the East coast for waterfowl. Yeah. So if any of you are interested in, in doing a workshop, especially the video workshop, I think that you'll find, you know, Doug had participants filming with DSLRs and had other participants Yep. filming with cine cameras yep so i i think you'll find that you'll get a lot out of it and of course you get to come to beautiful wyoming nothing better than Wyoming. you can't really beat it the Beartooth mountains uh, i always tell people is it ranks right up there in the top three of my favorite places that i've ever been and ever worked uh it's just it's just, it's gorgeous it's wild and the variety of what you what you can film in one location is is off the chart. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean flood the Beartooth Mountains, but that's it, right. It is a beautiful place. I had the opportunity to work up there when I was with the Game and Fish in Wyoming, and it definitely is one of the unsung, least visited yeah. spots in the state, and and warrants a visit at some point. Well, life. a lot of people don't come because I mean it's so cold. I mean it is is very windy and brutally cold and uh you know if you don't do well with those environments then <laughs> stay in florida <laughs> <laughs> right sub-zero temperatures are you know are daily occurrence so so i guess one question that i've heard um some people ask specifically in reference to michael do you find yourself picking up the camera at all for stills anymore a little bit, not much, not much. Uh, generally, I find myself in situations where, you know, I, I have to make a choice because of equipment, what you're going to carry. And, um, you know, I'm mostly doing filming assignments now. So, um, so no, I'm not, I'm not really doing a whole lot of stills, just a little bit here and there, you know, mm-hmm. when it's convenient, pretty much. Or when there's a specific assignment that requires uh, photography. So Sure. Doug, what I want to get into next, I think when you were last with us on the podcast, you had just launched the Swamp Crawler. (laughs) The Swamp Crawler (laughs) 1.0. And you, sounds like you quickly found some some issues with it. Yeah, there were, um, I mean, as far as the way the the hydraulics work on, on the first version, it worked flawless. Uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue was that 
even with the largest outboard motor that the boat could physically handle, and I'm talking many times more than its recommended, um, you know, horsepower, the boat was painfully slow, painfully slow. Um, you know, it took me forever to get anywhere. And, you know, a lot of times I like to, like, when the storms come in in the spring and late summer, um, I like to sit as long as I can. I wait to the very last minute before I try to run from the storms for, for a number of reasons. Sometimes they just peter out and, you know, dissipate or go in a different direction that doesn't threaten me. Um, but the real reason is, is that a lot of times I get the, the most beautiful light just before or just after the storm. And so I try to hang in there as long as I can. Well, I need to be able to run when it's time to run, you know, to get away from, and that boat just was not doing it. I mean, it literally was like maybe nine miles an hour. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was really painfully slow. The other thing was that, um, when I built it, it built it on a pontoon boat and I actually converted the pontoon boat to a tri-tune. So I added a third tune in the middle to increase the weight capacity that I could actually carry in the boat. Um, that did work. It did increase the weight capacity, but the actual weight of the third tune and the extra drag is what slowed me down. Um, and also I could not carry any, I couldn't carry anything extra than just me and my equipment. And if I had any extra equipment that I wanted to take, if I say I was going to go camp for a few days and need to carry extra gear, I was literally at the weight limit of what the boat could safely hold. So I came up with the idea of completely redesigned the Swamp Crawler, and now we have the Swamp Crawler 2.0. So basically it's a 19-foot large uh, utility John boat made by Express, and uh, it's Yamaha four-stroke engine, 90 Yamaha four-stroke engine on it. And it's a completely open design. There's nothing, no seats that are manufactured into the boat. Uh, completely open boat so that I could design it the way I wanted it. And uh, then I, I took the hydraulic system off of the, the first swamp crawler and uh, kind of redesigned it and put it onto the new one. And it works. I mean, now I actually have what what I was looking for to begin with. Um, loaded with all my gear and everything, it'll still do about 42, 43 miles an hour, which is scatting on the water pretty good. So, um, so yeah, and, um, yeah, it's just all around better design and, yeah, enjoying it. And I'm already getting people wanting to rent it, so uh, <laughs> film crews and stuff wanting to rent sure. it because it's specifically designed for filming in up to 12 feet of water. So. Mm-hmm. So in 12 feet of water or less, I can drop the hydraulic stabilizers and turn the hydraulics on and literally lift the boat 30 inches out of the water or just simply, you know, push them down into the, the bottom of the the lake or the river or whatever. Just to stabilize. Just to stabilize the boat. Yeah. So um, I can yeah. think of a lot of applications even in Wyoming. We don't have any swamps, but. Yeah. Well, it'll work on sand. It'll get, work on a rocky yeah, bottom. Nesting waterfowl, nesting, mm-hmm. you know, shorebirds. One of the, the assignments that I'm going to be working on March through April, all of March and all of April in Louisiana, um, will be in the swamps there. 
and we can only access it by boat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and we're actually going to, uh, the network is actually going to uh, rent the boat out every day to, to work for us to work out of. So, so you know, it's already paying off. Keep that. You might have Swamp, swamp Crawler Fleet going Yeah, on. Swamp Crawler <laughs> 3.0, right? <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was actually it was a game changer. It really was. Uh, I was real pleased with the way the first one came out, and that's when I realized this will work. You know, you, you come up with an idea for a project and, and in your mind and on paper, and physically it should – work but you never know until you actually do it if it's actually going to work and um so that first one was a good trial run and i saw that the the concept would work and so that's the reason i went ahead and i invested again and um and upgraded the boat so so yeah it's a game changer this is going to be kind of a segue from that conversation but a lot of our listeners ask all the time how do you know when it's time to become a professional photographer? How do you know what does it take to become a professional photographer? And I think what you just heard is somebody who's willing to do whatever they want. If the tool doesn't exist, create the tool. And I think that one of the answers that we have neglected to share with uh, with people that listen to the podcast that, that have that curiosity, that want to know is that it takes a reputation of getting the job done. So if if somebody sends you out for a shot, it doesn't matter what the limitations are, you get the shot. And when you get some of the assignments that Michael and Doug have have gotten in the past, that's because people know that they're going to get results. They're, They're going to get their money's worth when they hire these guys. And I think as photographers, you look at Mark's work. When he gets assignments through magazines, same thing. You're going to get your money's worth. So I think when we talk about that conversation, you know, or that question, what does it take to become a professional photographer? I think that honestly, you know, perfect your craft, but then develop a reputation for getting the job done. If somebody wants something, you find a way to get it. Uh, Garrett Venn as another example. If you listen to his, um, the conversation in his podcast about how he was able to get one of the shyest raptors in the lower 48, the Ferruginous hawk, how he was able to get footage of the Ferruginous in the nest without disturbing the nest at all. But he still got the job done in that documentary, The Sagebrush Sea. If you look at Doug's, uh, what is it, Natural History Channel, I mm-hmm. believe is what it is on YouTube, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, the Natural History Channel. You can see several examples. Um, all of the guests that he has on that show as well, all the guests that we've had on the podcast are people who get the job done in one way or another. So there's lots of opportunities to learn, but there's also lots of opportunities to go out and conquer yourself. And the swamp crawler is just, you know, I kind of have had the same thought. Uh, One of the subjects that I like to photograph on the plains is burrowing owls. Mm. They come in and they occupy prairie dog towns. Uh, burrowing owls are fairly shy and you don't want to disturb the nest the right. easiest place or easiest time to photograph them is when they've got owlets you know in the in the burrow so one of the things that i've i've uh commissioned two high school kids to build me kind of a prairie crawler okay 
And one of the requirements is that sucker has a hard plastic seat because you're going to be pedaling over cactus. Oh. But you can camo it, so it's it's a mobile blind, so you can camo it and pedal out, pedal back. Oh, that's cool. Uh, airless. Real low profile. Airless tires, low profile, so you're at eye level with the birds or with prairie dogs, whatever you decide to shoot. That's awesome. But it's uh, it's going to be a great tool for me yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the, probably the first project I ever did, um, talking about, you know, different building a blind or, or a vehicle or different tools was actually a muskrat blind. And oh, yeah. it was to, to photograph uh, waterfowl from. And because I was trying to get to different ducks that were very difficult to get, get close to. And I wanted to get water level. I wanted the lens as close to water level as I could get it. So I actually took an uh, inner tube from a 18-wheeler tire and a large inner tube and cut a piece of plywood basically the size of the inner tube and then lashed the plywood down around with some uh, bungee cords, I think it was, mm-hmm. and then took uh, chicken wire and made a formed a dome over the top of it and stapled that to the, to the plywood. And then... I, and I still have this ball head. It was a old studio ball. And uh, it's actually the brand name of studio ball. And it was actually the first ball head that I ever had. It was way overweight for what it did. <laughs> but uh, but it's the only thing we had available at the time. And this is 35 years ago, I guess now. And, um, and I mounted that studio ball to the plywood. And so the lens was, you know, part of the, the raft. And I would put my chest waders on and get down in the water and and pull the muskrat blind down over me. And then the chicken wire has grass woven all, all kind of brush and, you know, vines and stuff um, all woven in there. And it looks like a muskrat hut. And the lens just pokes through the side of it. And so you get in there and can, on, walk with your waders throughout through the water. And, uh, yeah, you can move right, I mean, literally right up to ducks. And uh, mm-hmm. so it, it worked, you know, worked perfect. Um, you just got to trial. Most of the time it's trial and error. You don't get it right the first time. Sure. Uh, just recently, while I was in Brazil, we actually had to build a aluminum frame. And this aluminum frame, it looked like a field goal. Basically, is a square, uh, excuse me, a rectangular aluminum out of uh, a two-inch aluminum pipe and made a, a rectangle about four feet by three feet. And then, and that sat on the ground. And then in the middle, it had like a football goalpost that comes up. And we actually took a hi-hat. And then if you don't know what a hi-hat is, it's, uh, it's the bowl that receives a video head the the leveling base of a of a video head and it has very very short legs only maybe five or six inches so basically allows you to mount a video head to any flat surface the floor of you know anything a floor a a trailer inside of a car anything and so we we mounted welded that to this frame inverted upside down and then we actually used a video fluid gimbal a really big one um and turned it upside down and hung the the uh 50 to 1000 lens and the red camera from that so basically what you have now instead of a tripod 
where you can only get it so low and also the legs of a tripod squeeze down in the mud and sand and they shift on you and it, you know, all of a sudden you, you're out of balance. And, uh, instead of dealing with that, now we have something where a big frame that sits on the bottom of the, of the lake and it, you know, it doesn't, doesn't squeeze down in the mud but the lens is now literally an inch off the water so you have this very intimate uh, looking footage that uh, really kind of puts you in the world of the subject that you're that you're filming and they you know the people I was doing the assignment for they said you know and they've they've done stuff all over the world and they've dealt with uh, cinematographers you know all over the world and they've never seen this done before but I had to build it at home. You know what? That's because nobody else had the cojones to put an eighty thousand dollar lens <laughs> an inch from the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it was again. You wonder whether this is going to work or or is it going to be a real wet disaster? But uh, yeah, it. it um, but it, it worked. It came. It worked perfectly. You know, I actually had to design it, build it at home, and have it also so I could tear it apart, disassemble it pack it into large pelican cases and put it under a plane and ship and fly to brazil with it uh and then easily reassemble it you know in the field and so it worked out great you know so like you said it's all about tools to get the job done and you know there are lots of people out there that do a great job with the artistry or you know the operation of their cameras um but they're not willing to go the extra mile and that's what you got to do. You got to, you got to put in that extra effort to get a, a particular shot. You know, that for me, that's the difference between a snapshot and a really nice piece of work, a fine art piece or, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, difference between like an iPhone video and something you see on planet earth. Right. Uh, so it's the, it's the time that you dedicate to getting one specific shot. So speaking of, we like to call our shots here on Wild and Exposed. What are we looking for tomorrow? I want to get a very tight shot of two uh, rams ramming horns. Um, when I say tight, I'm talking head, head and neck, and that's it. Um, I've got I've, I've been fortunate enough in the last two weeks to to pretty much get everything else to make a you know a really nice sequence. But I don't have that, you know, really tight close-up impact shot that I want. Um, I've got one at in 4K at 60 frames, but I really want to get it in 120 frames per second so that it slows down and you see that shock wave ripple through the mus- muscles of their neck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been it's been snowing almost every day, uh, and so there's probably little bits of snow that are going to fly off, you know, when that impact when they make impact. So that's what I'm looking for. That's kind of what I'm looking for tomorrow. I'm looking for some bighorn sheep jumping the river. Oh yeah. 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 That too. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that one may be a better possibility because all the stars have to align all the yeah. climatic yeah. energies have to align and you've got to have a UN estrus that puts these guys into. Yeah. That well, we know where we have seen it. it. Yeah, we know where they're doing. I saw, yep. I've seen it two mornings in a row uh, at the same spot. So that's a good place to start for sure. Um, but uh, you know, like this morning, we went and looked. We didn't even see any right. tracks or anything that would 
uh, lead us to believe that anything was in the area. So we kept on going. So we don't know what what happened there today. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we have seen some fighting over the last couple of days, which is the first time I've talked about on the podcast, the first time I've ever experienced it. Um, not the big mature rams. These guys have been young rams that are rearing up and smacking each other. Uh, but it's still fun to watch, and it's fun to listen to, to be oh, yeah. honest with you. Yeah, and you can tell even without seeing it, mm-hmm. the impact, you can tell – if it's a big ram or if it's small rams, but just by the sound, you yep. know, that real deep crash that, you know, you'll get, it's almost like a thunk and a crash mm-hmm. from the big heavy horns hitting. And, and then we did hear it this, today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We, and it then, was in a different drainage. But. Yeah. Yeah. It, you don't know where it might be, if, yeah. you know, if it's not right in front of you. You can hear it echoing through the mountains and those canyons. But, uh, and then the smaller rams, you know, it's, it's just a real loud snap, almost like a pop. So it's, uh, it's neat to, to be able to just to associate those sounds with the actual size without right. even knowing, without even seeing them. Yeah. So pretty cool. Well, we'll hope to get both of those accomplished tomorrow. Yeah, I'll put that on my want list. And we'll have to we'll have to get with Randy and have him set up the exact locations where those are both going to occur. <laughs> <laughs> with all his local knowledge. Doug, is there anything you'd like to share with the wild and exposed audience as far as you know, an encouragement for them as the as they get going this winter. All I would say is take advantage of each season and, uh, you know, kind of maximize what the season is about. So right now we're in, in the dead of winter. And so dead of winter, you know, means snow, means ice. Head to those environments and make the most of it. Um, you know, we're shooting bighorn sheep in the middle of the peak of the rut with, you know, snow as the background and, um, ice all around so which you know adds to the the background so maximize the season use it to your advantage and uh, have fun absolutely as always thanks for listening to wild and exposed to see more of our team's work you can go to facebook instagram our youtube channel and of course at wildandexposed.com I want to spend, send a special shout-out to our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to create this show for your listening enjoyment. And no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to take the time to hit that subscribe or follow button and to give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs-up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.